It is a very dangerous thing to ignore history and to forget about it, to rewrite it. That is dangerous. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery. Thank you for joining us as we go through the Bible. This is really exciting. And today we're going to talk about this from Joshua 24, a very interesting passage in about five minutes time. So as we go forward, let's get our Bible and get ready. First of all, here's Corey. Corey? All right, so today we're looking at the time period of the conquest of Israel. So the people have moved into the land of Israel, but my question is, how did they hunt for their food? We're gonna be talking about that later. Ryan? Well, another question for you. Have you ever wondered how a God the Bible calls loving and merciful could order the complete annihilation of certain people groups? Well, that's what I'm gonna be dealing with today on the program. Sounds great. And that's coming up in 20 minutes, 25 minutes, Janice. Today, we all have a testimony. All right, very good. Get your Bible out. Let's listen to what God says. Joshua 24, 1 through 13. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, 
and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 13. Joshua chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24. That's what we study today. It's a very interesting time. It can be dangerous, a dangerous thing, to ignore the lessons of the past. Culture can begin to spiral into pointless immorality when proud and uninformed ideas reign. For me specifically, remembering the world's origin and the history of God's plan for man's salvation is the most important, and we must teach it. When we remember that we are created by God in His image, that God has made a way for our rescue, we're better off. We can choose to follow our Creator into a good life. God has programmed our world with His moral principles that will ultimately condemn or excuse us. The scriptures are full of examples for us to really think on, for us to learn from, so that we can know how to not fall. Our theme verse at Bible Discovery TV remembers how God is strong to rescue us, even out of horrible failures. Psalm 107 verse 20, here's what it says. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. May we learn more of the word of God every single day, because that's very important. Today, we study the last part of Joshua. And this is fascinating because as we do so, take your Bible guide and turn to the page. And when we look at March the 2nd, I want to encourage you that the value of history is important. History is often forgotten. And Lord, I want to pray today in the name of Jesus Christ that you would teach us your way and show us your path. History is true. And Lord, I know there's people that have different views of history, but Lord, your Bible gives us the clear view of objective history. So help us to see that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen gives us the history of God's people, the history of Israel, as we see God dealing with a nation. That becomes important. And this time, God deals with this nation in a very specific way. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 1, here's what it says. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Verse 1. Verse 2 says, And Joshua said to all of the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your people, or your father Abraham, from them, God says, from the other side of the river and led them throughout all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. 
Also, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterwards, I brought you out. Now, this is fascinating because God is giving us history here. Through Joshua, the Lord reminds the people, the leaders of Israel, about their history. And that's true today. We should always remember that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. Beloved, this is what God is telling us. This is what his word tells us. In the New Testament, we read about this. We understand that nobody's born perfect. Nobody's born great. There's not a gifting that you can gain from humankind that makes us perfect. It's said often, well, nobody's perfect. Well, there is one person, and that is God. That's why I believe Jesus Christ is Lord because he was perfect in his ways. So now we think this through and we begin to understand that the only way we can gain that perfection is through his holiness. Now that's important because that becomes a big part of our life decision. Joshua 24, 6 says, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord and he put drunkenness or rather darkness rather between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. What's he saying? God saved his people from their destruction in Egypt and the Red Sea. This is important to remember. The Lord has saved us from our sin and the ravages of hell. Praise the Lord. Beloved, keep this in mind. We have to say yes to Jesus Christ. We have to say yes to Yeshua HaMashiach. We have to say yes to him. It's like the Red Sea parted, but we're not going across. We have to go across and say, yes, Lord. I'm a sinner. Yes, Lord, I need you. Yes, Lord, you will give me life. Very important because God did all of that. He led the way. Now that brings us to the last passage of scripture, 8 to 13. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you because I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land and I destroyed them from before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And I sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Or he sent and called Balaam to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to, to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And then you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gershonites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you also, the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I, no, no, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves, which you did not plant. What is God saying? It was God. It was him who provided the blessings and the protection of his people since the beginning. God has done that. 
Beloved, we should remember that God gives us everything. Praise the Lord. God gives us everything. Praise God. Beloved, we need to understand that we are in a time right now that is very unique. We're in a time when we're going to be talking about Israel a lot over the next year in the last parts of the program, on the last parts of the week, because we need to pay attention to what God is doing. I mean, there's some very unique things happening. And we need to listen to what the Lord has said to us, because that's important. So help us to pray and understand that, Father, I pray today that we would understand that you're speaking to us. And as we report and talk about these things, speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear what you're doing today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us, when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. Welcome back to the program. Today, I want to talk about the love and the mercy of God, because throughout the Bible, we read all about God's great love and mercy. But at the same time, we read about the so-called holy wars, you know, those divine commands to totally wipe out certain peoples and nations. Now, some of these include the complete annihilation of the Canaanites, as in Joshua, the leveling of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, and also in Genesis, the world-ending global flood. And this isn't even mentioning the coming judgment of the world. So the ultimate question is, if God is truly loving and merciful, then how could he order such destruction? Well, let's study. Although the Bible repeatedly declares that God is loving and merciful, there are several occasions where divine order is given to destroy, and in some cases to totally and utterly destroy, certain nations and cities. Numbered among these are the complete annihilation of the Canaanites, the leveling of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the world-ending global flood. In fact, God even destroyed his beloved Jerusalem and exiled his own people off into a foreign land. It is such egregious acts which have caused many to reject God as loving and merciful, viewing him instead as a deity who required appeasement and blood sacrifice to satisfy his capricious lust. However, this cynical view of the Almighty is completely ignorant and unfounded. For one thing, these critics want to separate the God who is merciful and loving from the God who is righteous and just. But these gods are one and the same. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 could not make this more clear. It first declares God to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, but goes on to say that he will by no means clear the guilty even visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children. As Paul the Apostle put it, Behold then the goodness and severity of God. To be sure, God is merciful and full of compassion, and promises to save and have pity on anyone who repents and calls upon him. But God is also just, and therefore does not extend mercy to those who refuse to repent, but administers justice. And this fact relates to another problem with the critics' view of God. The reason God brought destruction on certain peoples was because they violently and steadfastly impeded or opposed his work 
over a long period of time. Indeed, in each and every case, God gave ample time and opportunity for the people to turn to him and live. For example, God waited many years before judging the world with a flood. In fact, he did not bring the watery cataclysm until all flesh had corrupted their way and violence had filled the whole earth. He even sent Noah as a preacher of righteousness, but they ignored the warnings and continued on with their everyday lives, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Similarly, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were so wicked that not even ten righteous could be found there. The outcry against them was very great, yet God waited more than three centuries before destroying those cities, and he even sent them Lot, who according to the apostle Peter, was considered a righteous man. Even the Canaanites, who committed many vile practices, including child sacrifice, sodomy, and bestiality, were given over 400 years of mercy and grace to turn from their wicked ways. And as the prostitute Rahab herself testified, her people knew who the God of Israel was. And the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were given roughly 750 and 900 years respectively, and were sent numerous warnings through many of God's prophets before the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. Clearly, God is merciful and loving, as well as long-suffering, and desires everyone to turn from their wicked ways and live. So hopefully you can see why the critics' view of God is wrong here. First of all, they want to separate the God who is merciful and loving from the God who is righteous and just. But the Bible teaches that God is all of these things. God is merciful and full of compassion and promises to save and have pity on anyone who repents and calls upon him. But he's also just and so doesn't extend mercy to those who refuse to repent, but he administers justice. Now, another problem with the critics' view of God as bloodthirsty is that God specifically brought destruction on those who violently and continually impeded or opposed his work over a long period of time. And this leads into a third and main reason why the critics' view of God is flawed. See, the critics' accusation that God isn't loving and merciful fails because the destruction of such evil nations was in itself an act of love and mercy. And as I just mentioned before, anyone who continued to violently impede or oppose God's work over long periods of time were destroyed. Now, sadly, a lot of people in the world today still actively oppose God's work, and eventually they also will face judgment. So let's take the words of Isaiah to heart when he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Yes, he will abundantly pardon. That's great, Ryan. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Corey? All right. We're talking about hunting today, but specifically the hunting of birds. So this is often referred to as fowling. So let's take a look at how this was done in the ancient world. Birds were both a source of food and sacrifice in ancient Israel. Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 13 preserve for us the list of fowl that were ritually impure and therefore not to be eaten or offered to God as sacrifice by the Israelites. As a general rule, birds of prey like eagles and falcons and carrion birds like vultures and ravens were ritually unclean. On the other hand, birds like pigeon, dove, and quail were acceptable as inexpensive sacrificial animals and fine to eat. 
Based on archaeological work in comparison with other contemporary cultures, we can be quite confident that ancient Israelites, where available, also ate partridge, geese, duck, chicken, and ostrich, as well as various bird eggs. Hunting wild birds is spoken of quite often in the Bible, likely due to the fact that it was a very common practice and that it provided useful imagery to the authors and poets of the Bible. Amos 3 verse 5 references the practice of trapping birds with a net filled with bait and laid on the ground, and Hosea 7 talks specifically about the use of nets in bird hunting. These descriptions are given visuals thanks to Egyptian tomb reliefs and paintings showing various forms and stages in fowling. Nets and traps, the use of blinds to shield hunters, and the aftermath of birds in cages and baskets are all depicted. Famously, a golden fan found in the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun is decorated with an ostrich hunting scene. The pharaoh on his chariot is shown hunting ostrich with his bow and arrows with the help of a dog. Similar methods of hunting are spoken of throughout ancient Mesopotamia, though not depicted quite as vividly as in the remains from ancient Egypt. People also kept and domesticated several kinds of birds. In Israel, this not only made birds more accessible for meat and eggs, but ensured that birds used in sacrifice to God, like doves, would be unblemished, undamaged by the act of capture. The many columbaria found throughout Israel testifies to the doves' domestication. It's also believed that by at least the latter half of the time of the kings of Israel and Judah, domesticated chickens were kept in the land. The history of chicken domestication is a complicated one, but their presence in Israel is known thanks to chicken bones found at Israelite sites. There's also a signet seal that was found at Tel Nazba that reads, belonging to Jazaniah, servant of the king, above an image of a rooster in a fighting stance. It's possible that this Jazaniah may be the officer mentioned in 2 Kings 25-23. Interestingly, the Bible also mentions the importing and keeping of exotic animals by rich King Solomon, which may have included exotic birds. It's also said that fattened birds were served at Solomon's dining table, meaning specially fed, domesticated birds. All right, so it, it makes a lot of sense why the authors of scripture would use something like bird fouling to create, you know, imagery for readers. I mean, teachers still do this today. Good preachers and teachers and, and even just everyday people in our communication, when we're trying to convey a concept, we will use images of everyday life to help convey our concept. So we see this happening in the Bible a lot, and it's quite helpful. Yeah, it's true. Very good, Corey. Thank you. Excellent. Janice? Today, I called my segment, We All Have a Testimony. I was reading Joshua 24. I'm going to just read the top line of verse 1 and then skip down to the bottom of verse 2. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel. And on it goes. Verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And it got me to thinking this, when we come to the Lord and we commit our lives to follow him, we're delivered into a new life. We have crossed over from the old way of living, serving other gods, to coming to the realization of who the true God is and committing our lives to follow him. We are crossed over into a new land, into a new creation. Now, the verses after this 
give us the testimonies of what God did. He's speaking to the people through Joshua, and he's reminding them of the things that he has done. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and then to Esau, I gave the uh, uh, the mountains of Seir, and then he goes on, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt. It goes down, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites, and it says later on, way down in verse 12, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out, and I have given you a land for which you did not labor cities which you did not build. And he goes on and we see the things that God did in their lives. And similarly, we all, when we have come to that place in our life where we recognize who God is and what he has done, what he has extended to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to the earth who gave his life willingly as a sacrifice to pay for our sins on the cross. And I know to some of you who are only hearing this for the first time, it might sound sound like nonsense to you, but in others, it's hitting something inside of you. And you're saying something that she's saying is right. That's coming from God's Holy Spirit speaking to you. God gave his son so that we can be reconciled. He paid that price that we should pay because the wages of sin is death is what the Bible tells, tells us. But Jesus came to give, to give his life so that we could obtain that forgiveness and that life. And when we make that decision and we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we begin to follow him, we get into his word, we learn what his word says, we get that in our hearts so that we can begin to apply it into our lives with the way we talk and the way we react, we have a testimony. We don't have to look very far back at all to see the faithfulness of the things that God has done for us. Each and every day, he helps us. So the summary and great exclamation point in this particular verse is in verse 14. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And it ends with serve the Lord. That's our reminder today. Let's not go back to the other side of the river. Let's encourage others to join us where we are on this side on a life following the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. It's a narrow road and we need to stay on the path. We need to stay in God's word. We need to keep our communication of meditation and prayer with him every day and get that word in our hearts and live it in our lives. I just want to tell you that if you go to YouTube and check out Pastor Rod Hembry, there's videos there that we do that are besides this program and other things that we do for you. And they're, they're a lot of fun. And I walk my dog and all kinds of things and talk about the scripture, how the scripture comes alive. But today, let's pray. Father, help us today. Lord, I pray that your powerful name would affect our lives, would get a hold of us. In Jesus' name, amen.